So I, I figured we'd start with with real introductions of of the five of you, and then we can. And you know, there's I'm sure most of the people in this room know know what Anduril is in the story, but it'd be good to start also with the 60 second version of of, of what your company is. But but everyone introduce themselves before we get going. Cool. My name is Palmer Lucky. I'm the founder of Anduril. Most people know me for starting a company called Oculus VR, which I sold to Facebook for a few billion dollars and then got fired. And uh, that's where I am today. I'm Brian Schimpf. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Andrel. Um, I uh, started out doing self-driving car stuff. Would have done that if it was actually a business then. Uh, still waiting to see if it's still a business. And uh, yeah, but then worked at Palantir for a number of years and then ended up joining this uh, Andrel adventure. Hi, I'm Matt Grimm, co-founder and COO uh, and, and and frequent target of ribbing from my co-founders. Uh, went to college <laughs> with Brian at Cornell and then spent a long time at, uh, at Palantir building our business development and go-to-market teams and then spent a couple of years as a venture capitalist before starting Andrew. And as the guys mentioned, I uh, I run our all of our back office operations and all of the guts that uh, sort of keep the, the finance legal um, facilities, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm Trey Stevens, uh, another one of the co-founders here at Anduril, and started my career in the U.S. intelligence community, actually, and then uh, was at Palantir for for a long time prior as well. Um, I'll also point out that Matt conveniently left out that he worked at Booz Allen Hamilton before he worked at Palantir. Uh, he's he's trying to hide that from from the crowd. I, I don't know that I knew that. That that is that is interesting. New information. I, last, I lasted I lasted eleven months, uh, and I remember it exactly because twelve months was the uh, the time I had to hit to re- get my payment for my relocation, and I um, had to bite the bullet and pay it out of pocket because it, it was not a fun place to work. Hey, I'm Joe. I am uh, old friends with Palmer from the Oculus days. Uh, hit me up and said we want to start a defense tech company. I said it couldn't be any harder than starting a video game goggle company. So that's me. Awesome. So I figured we'd start with the, the, for those in the room who don't know what Andrew is, give us the 60 second version of what the company's. Sure. So we are a defense technology company that is taking a product approach to trying to change the way DOD does business. We want to shift things away from cost plus contracting towards actual product investment. It's a radical notion in DOD and in government, but it's basically the business model that everyone is used to in the consumer and enterprise space. Um, So in our case, we've really focused on autonomous systems, using artificial intelligence to make hardware and software tools for uh, U.S. government customers and also a lot of lot of lot of allied nations. Um, I'd say that's probably the the the, that's probably the the shortest way to boil it down. And I I mean, I'd love to hear why you decided to to found a defense uh, contractor, because I know, uh, you know, a few of us remember what it was like in 2017 before this was Uh even a sector. Uh In, in defense at, or, or in, in technology, I should say. Why did you guys decide to do this? Because this is a, a really hard thing to do. I mean, it, it's really interesting to watch how years later, the defense space has gotten pretty hot in tech. I think also the AI space has gotten a lot hotter. That, I'm not going to try to claim that in 2017, early 2017, that people weren't talking about AI, but it was nowhere as near as it's hot as, hot as it's become now. So uh, it, 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 kind of interesting in that we managed to ride or maybe even help create some of those trends. Um, as for why starting a defense company, man, this, this, we could just go on for the rest of the night just on this one issue. Um, I know that for me, a really big part of it was kind of down to, I guess it was three factors. One, 
looking at the major defense primes in the United States, like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, they're good at doing some things. They're really bad at doing others. They do not have the best technology when it comes to these types of new, like, like artificial intelligence, sensor fusion, machine learning. They don't have the best tools or the talent or the incentives to work on it correctly. And so you have these guys who are great at building aircraft carriers, great at building fighter jets. And I say great, not in meaning that they're cost effective, but they do get it done. Uh, and just totally failing on these things that the private sector is doing much better on. And then on the flip side, you have the private sector that is so capable in these areas, largely refusing to do work with the Department of Defense. You know, our, our thesis back then was that this was, this was going to become more of a problem. You're going to see more and more American tech companies pulling away from the DOD, pulling away from doing national security work. And unfortunately, that's continued to be true. And this is normally the type of situation where startups would jump in and be able to uh, do a much better job, do things more efficiently, take advantage of this market distortion, the fact that everyone doing the work is incapable and everyone, uh, <laughs> everyone capable, unwilling. Uh, and the problem is that there's very, very little room for new companies to enter the defense space and become successful. I mean, all the major primes have been around for the, you know, closer to 100 years than 50. Um, there hasn't been a, a new unicorn in the defense space, aside from Palantir and SpaceX, in the last 35 years or so. And so it was very, very hard for new startups to get into that space and take that, and take that place. And at the same time, the spooky thing is that China and Russia are doing an incredibly good job of weaponizing their commercial AI and autonomy sectors in a way that just isn't being done in the United States. So all, all those things combined are what made me want to start a defense company. Like working on defense because it's important and it felt like there were not nearly enough people willing to do it. Nobody wanted to take the heat. Nobody wanted to take the controversy. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a polarizing individual, I guess. Some people like me, some people don't. I figured that that put me in a position where I could afford to do something that some people weren't really going to like. And uh, it also, I, I was in a position where I looked at the last two defense companies to become unicorns, and it was Palantir and SpaceX. And the thing that those two companies had in common is that they were started by people who had just sold their company for billions of dollars. So figured that it wouldn't be impossible to make a run at it and become the, the third. So, so I want to I dive in there because origin stories are always interesting. And as you said, you don't mind controversy, but Brian's a really nice guy. Like he's like the nicest person anyone in this room has ever met. Oh man, and I, so I, I love, I, I, I love that. I, I, I love, I love, I love how uh, he's like, oh, Brian's such a nice guy. Uh, but I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy too. Right, Catherine? No, you're, you're a very nice guy. Probably. Brian's no, such I'm... a nice guy. <laughs> Lucky you, Brian. No, but, but I, I want to hear from Brian because I want to hear why, you know, in 2017, as I said, it was a it was a contrarian thesis. No one was talking about defense, but you all. I mean, obviously, you guys, you guys were all successful. You'd all come from Palantir, from Oculus. I want to hear how it actually happened and, and who decided, OK, we're, we're doing this. Like, like, walk me through the actual orange origin story. Man, so I'll, I'll go through kind of um, what, you know, I recall of it. So, I mean, I had been talking with Trey and Matt for a long time. And Trey's been like, hey, I think I think we should start a defense company. Me and we're like, I don't know, you know, sounds interesting. We're kind of happy with what we're doing. Um, and uh, and Trey and Palmer had met through Founders Fund. Basically, Founders Fund was the first institutional investor in Oculus and sort of through the, you know, kind of Founders Fund networking events. They had met, talked about how this was like, you know, exactly the right problem to solve, something to go after. Um, and, you know, kind of at the time I was, you know, having a, I had a great gig. I was running product and engineering Palantir. It was awesome. 
Um, and you know, they were like, Hey, we're doing this, you know, you know, are you interested? Uh, it took a little bit of arm twisting, maybe like a week, maybe. Uh, and I was like, you know what, this is, this is perfect. It's hard to imagine a better setup, uh, sort of team, a better setup time. And for me, the motivation was really around, you know, I'd spent a lot of time at Palantir working in the defense sector. And the, the thing that really struck me was, uh, kind of two things. One was, um, the users there, the, all the soldiers, all the operators, all that, they're incredibly mission-driven, incredibly passionate about what they're doing. They're incredibly like willing to try new things, take on new technology. Really, really impressive. Um, and just like an incredibly inspiring group of people to work with. And then on the other side of it, I had seen just like how truly absurd a lot of the tech really was. So you think of like, you know, something like a uh, um, uh, a predator or a reaper drone. You know, you think this is like kind of cutting edge tech, really, really impressive. It takes somewhere on the order of like 13, 15, 20 people to operate one of these things. Uh, it's just massively manpower consumption, like really, really constrained, just really not impressive in terms of like what the state of the art could actually do. And so it was just sort of pretty obvious just how much the defense department was behind on all things software, all things AI. And it just seemed incredibly well-timed and incredibly open just to go tackle this space and go after a lot of problems here. So one of the other things that I think is not well-known, but Trey's mentioned this a lot, is that when you look at kind of the, the three unicorns in the defense industry that are, that are pure defense players from the last few decades, uh, it's SpaceX, Palantir, and, and now Anduril, uh, which were all founded by people who had previously sold companies. Uh, I would love to know if you think it's possible for a company in the defense space uh, to be successful without having that sort of institutional knowledge. Yeah, I think it's possible now, but only as of very recently. And like, like to to challenge the premise, I think it's less about having the experience running a company and more about having experience navigating the way that DoD works and how they procure things, and then figure out how to hack the system so that you can sell things to them as a new company because it is that is not at all what they are used to. Yeah, I think one of the one of the core lessons that we kind of carried out of Palantir and through our friendships and relationships at SpaceX is that really like you get to stand on the shoulders of all the giants that went before you. Um, and they're each kind of like breaking new ground and setting new norms and uh, challenging procurement conventions. Uh, and we, we kind of get to benefit uh, to, from all of the lessons and all the battles that have been fought by, um, by those that have gone before us. And I think that startups in the future will have the, the same opportunity that they'll be able to stand on our shoulders uh, and leverage some of the the network and um, changes that that we've been able to push through. Yeah. So, so talking about those those changes that you were able to push through, a lot's changed uh, since 2017 and the last few years. What is it that you all know about the defense industry that you think other companies in Silicon Valley don't know? Like you've had, you know, you, you were able to get to program a record very quickly. This happened last year. Like, like what is it that you understand that say a lot of people didn't before? If they watch our talks, they know everything we know. I mean, that that's one of the <laughs> one of the best parts about running this company has been that we've been so open about how we are doing things and why we are doing them the way that we're doing. Because the goal, like my goal, is not just to compete in the existing game with the DoD. It's to change the way that they do procurement. I think that if we can spoil the government by weaning them off of the shitty results of cost plus contracting and getting them used to companies being responsible for the Actually, like actually making their stuff work and making it work before they get paid and losing money when it doesn't, um, 
then I think, oh shoot, where, where, where was I even going with this? What was your, what was your question? I got off, I got off, off in my head. Well, no, well, no I mean, I, I, you, you actually stumbled into my next question, which is this like, you know, procurement maze that I think, it, you know, any of us who have talked to early stage companies and, and you know, Mark and, and Eric, I know also, you know, have worked with companies that are selling to defense department. It is like yep. nothing else. And in, in, it's not like enterprise sales. It's not like any other kind of startup. And so there's this question of like, why is procurement the way it is? And why is it that so few companies understand how to work with the Department of Defense? Well, I think like, like I remember what I was getting into. Like, I think people haven't been talking about it. Up till now, the companies that were doing well with DOD didn't want that knowledge out there. They didn't want to share how to navigate the system because they don't want the system to change. Like we're out there shouting from the heavens to try, you know, try to get everyone to do what we're doing because we think that if everyone does things the way that we're doing, everything's going to be better off. So, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> I think that's been something we've done a really good job of. And I think you're seeing more and more small defense startups copying the way that we did things and seeing quite a bit of success that way. I think in terms of the question of like, why is the procurement system the way it is? Honestly, a lot of this is um, kind of a relic of the Cold War, where the DoD was the one leading on innovation. They were building all the new technologies. It was all kind of built specially for them. And then those things made it out into the commercial sector. Um, and, and it really has been tooled around, you know, how do you design it? How do you have a system for building kind of one of a kind uh, battleships and you know, long range missiles and all these things. And, and the system's probably like roughly right for that. I mean, there's inefficiencies, there's problems, um, but directionally it's it's not crazy how it's set up if that's really what you're optimizing on. You know, I think what's happened is the way you buy, build, think about software um, and sort of all these software enabled technologies, the pace is wildly different. Uh, the way you have to think about incentives, the way you think about, you know, the talent and the way you build these systems and how you invest in them is massively changed. Uh, and, and I think that's the big, you know, kind of shift that's that's needing to happen. So the system has really been dialed for this Cold War era way of building things. Um, and that worked for a very long time, uh, but it is decreasingly working. And, and that's the the big shift that we're trying to take a part of. One of the things that, that you all have talked a lot about in terms of procurement needing to change is that, as you said, like it worked before, it worked for battleships, it worked for tanks, but it doesn't work for software and it doesn't work. Uh, when you have near peer rivals like Russia and China who are doing things in a different way. I'd love to hear your thoughts on particularly how procurement and how this sort of business maze that that commercial companies have to navigate is affecting our ability to compete globally. Um, and I know you have a lot of thoughts there, so I, I'd love to hear from from all of you. Oh man, there's so many pieces here. So um, I, I think number one is the, um, the DoD understands how to buy hardware, not software. Uh, and so one of the things we realized going in was we were going to be much more effective as a company in terms of being able to scale if you know we had a significant hardware component and in a lot of ways wrapped a lot of the innovative pieces uh, in in metal. Like that's just sort of how we had to think about it from the beginning. Uh, so that was a big part of what we set out to do was, look, it's very hard to kind of convince people to you know run the software, to price it, to value it. Um, I know what that looks like. You can win. It just takes a long time. Uh, so a big part was kind of reflecting that they needed to, um, you know, kind of have this hardware component, something they can count, touch, see, understand to really justify, you know, and, and roll these things out at scale. Um, you know, I, I think the the other part, there's just so many parts that are just sort of like hard to, to kind of wrap your head around. One of these is uh, just the sheer slowness of the cycle that they do all these things on. 
So they have this budgeting and funding process. It is no joke, like a five-year process, minimum three years, realistically five years to go from, you know, kind of, hey, I've got good technology that seems to work through to, I validated that this is a legitimate, you know, requirement, they call it, which implies, you know, how it works and they can write down the requirement for how the system has to work. Then it goes into a budgeting process. Then Congress decides, uh, assuming they even pass a budget, then you can finally get kind of scaled up. So finding those ways to kind of bridge those uh, gaps, bring, bridge that valley of death from you have promising technology through to it, you know, is deployed and scaled and fielded, um, fielded at scale. That does take a obscenely long time, and I think that's the crux of, of a lot of these problems. Is they just need to buy things faster. You know, the life cycle on software, the life cycle on your iPhone, is not three years. It is not five years. It is much much shorter. Uh, and I think that pace of technology is really kind of putting the system to its limits. I would also add, like, I, you know, we're all big fans of democracy, um, but it's worth keeping in mind that authoritarian systems have some inherent advantages against us in this in this sector. Um, you know, in China, in uh, Russia, in Iran, in North Korea, the governments can literally conscript their best software talent, literally conscript their best software talent into working on things that have national security implications or strategic implications. Um, we, we can't do that. Uh, and I would argue we shouldn't do that. It's not a good idea. We should allow people to make their own decisions about what they want to work on. Um, but we also need to create opportunities and avenues by which people that are interested in contributing to that mission can do it in an aspirational way um, rather than, you know, if, if you want to do something with uh, you know, the Defense Department, you have to go and work in, in a windowless basement with Lockheed Martin or something. There, there have to be better answers than that, um, which is, you know, what we found with Palantir, SpaceX as well. It's like a very similar story. You know, that's such an interesting point, Trey, because yes, authoritarian regimes can get the best talent, but but cool companies that are soaring can also get the, the best ta- talent. And I'm just wondering why the sort of capitalist message of if the government really wants something, if they really want to buy a certain type of software, they can buy it. Do you think that that's resonating in Washington now? Is there a realization that, oh, like we to compete against China, we actually have to give contracts? Or is it we're going to keep on doing business as usual? It's not always clear to me that the government uh, decision makers know how to evaluate the, the talent and how to evaluate their options. Um, and so a lot of times they will circle back to what they're comfortable with, which is, you know, these cost plus contracts that have a disincentive for innovation that are bad for the government, they're bad for the taxpayer, they're bad for the, you know, U.S. national security, um, but they're familiar. Uh, And so that ends up, that cycle ends up running more often than it should. Um, I think there's an increasing awareness that's growing, certainly inside of Congress. There's, There's been a lot of talk recently about how this is becoming more of a problem um, there are, you know, really great people across the government inside of the bureaucracy uh, that get it and that have, have pushed really hard. And a lot of those people, by the way, are like literally the reason why we are doing well as a company is that they understand uh, that whether or not we have the exact product that meets their needs on day one, they believe that they're basically making an investment in uh, access to talent that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And, um, and, and that's, you know, a message that has resonated for them. So I want to get into that point about talent that you've said, and also the point about maybe the government doesn't know how to assess technology. Um, And and Trey, that's something you've talked a lot about, which is, you know, a lot of the people in Congress, maybe not the, you know, you you mentioned a lot of the bureaucrats really understand or the procurement officers are actually technologists and, and, and they're good people trying to do their job. 
but a lot of the people at the top do not understand how technology works. I'd love to hear your thoughts on and how we correct that problem, because that's a, a bigger problem than just we're procuring the wrong things or we need to give contracts. That's sort of a, a generational problem, a shift to, that needs to happen in terms of the people that are running for office. How do we fix that? I think one interesting part of this narrative that doesn't get talked about very much is that if, if you go back to like the foundations of the country, um, it is actually possible that all of the, you know, the, the senior leaders in the government had read basically every important piece of li- important piece of literature that had ever been written in human history. Um, and yet today, like it's possible that two people in the same department at a top university, like won't even understand each other's research. Um, so that information proliferation creates a very serious problem for legislators, uh, which is that, you know, uh, they're expected to know a lot about everything. And it's just completely irrational to believe that they would ever be able to do that. Now, I'm not I don't want to give them like a free pass here. Like, obviously, technology is really important and we need more people in Congress that understand technology. And there's some generational civil civil service questions that are inherent to that discussion. Uh, But I do think that like we have to we as the technology community and Andrew for our specific purposes, we're on the hook for informing the legislature. Um, what, what it is that we're doing. Um, and, and that is part of, I think, what makes any successful defense company successful is that they've figured out the muscle memory around government relations. So I, I want to talk about something that, that is, I think, a common narrative. If you, you know, if you pick up the New York Times, if you pick up uh, different papers, there's this narrative that's been going around for the last few years, which is that technology companies do not want to work with Washington. And specifically, they don't want to work with the DOD. Um, and, you know, everyone kind of remembers the the Project Maven issue where, where a number of Google engineers walked out because they didn't want to work on defense. Uh, but I think, you know, the people in this room and, and you all have seen the opposite, which is that people are actually really excited to work with government. And so I'd love to hear, you know, from each of you kind of your experience of whether it's recruiting or whether talking to people or just building a company. Do you think that people are excited to work with the Department of Defense? And, and how has that changed in Silicon Valley over time? I think that people are actually pretty excited about it. And you have to differentiate between tech workers and the tech companies. A lot of people really have this assumption that tech workers and tech companies are aligned in not wanting to work with the DoD. But I think that if you were to talk to, let's say, 10 people in tech and ask them a simple question, should the United States have the best military in the world? Um, Almost all of them would agree, probably eight or nine out of those 10. And then if you said, would you be willing to work on military technology, you know, uh, you know, just as a hypothetical, not are you going to go do it, but would you be willing to, you'd still probably get seven or eight out of those 10 who are, who are, who are open to it. The problem is that that one person who's totally against it is the one who gets the most press. He's the one who gets the most attention. He tends to be the, the loudest. And most importantly, he happens to be the one that is saying exactly what the big tech companies want him to say, which is that the reason they don't want to work with DOD is related somehow to a reasoned ethical position, that it's related to some kind of principled opposition to the idea of working with the United States military, when in reality, it's all about the money. It's about making sure you don't cause any controversy. It's about making sure that you keep the money train moving no matter what. And in my opinion, those that, that one out of 10, you know, that, that one out of 10 big tech employees who says that he's 
anti-DOD, that he thinks big tech shouldn't be working with the DOD, is saying exactly what the CEOs of these companies want to represent as uh, a principled position. Most of the people who are parroting these types of views have not really thought about it, or they have not been exposed to the kind of information that people who work in the defense sector have. Um, And so I, I think we have to separate that. The big tech companies don't want to work with DOD. Most of the tech community, I think, would be happy to do so. And I know this as somebody who, you know, like I said earlier, I can be a little polarizing. I'll hear from people all the time. They say, hey, hey, Palmer, I just want you to know, I love what you guys are doing. I really love the idea of, of better technology for our, for our troops, but I can't say it. And I hear this from probably 80% of the people that I know in the tech space, even in spaces where we totally disagree politically, totally disagree economically, socially, uh, you know, totally disagree on our taste in video games and our taste in ice cream. We're all able to agree on this. And so it, it's, it's kind of a secret, it's kind of a secret, secretly popular view that nobody's able to talk about because their bosses don't want them to act on it. It's worth noting that there are a few big tech companies that do actually kind of stand up and say, hey, we're going to do this. And there, there's kind of two categories. There's companies that will, there's maybe three. There's companies that won't work with duty. There's companies that will work with duty and they'll sell them the same thing they sell to everybody else. This is uh, most of the big tech companies. Like Apple will sell iPhones to anybody, right? They'll sell them to the NSA. They'll sell them to the US Air Force. They're also going to sell them to the Russian army. They're also going to sell them to the Chinese Air Force. And that's fine. I'm not saying they shouldn't be allowed to do that, but we have to recognize that them selling the same thing they sell to everybody to USDOD doesn't create any kind of competitive advantage or durable advantage, especially if our adversaries are actually better at taking advantage of those tools than we are, which they often are. Um, The other category is companies that build technology that is specifically for DOD applications. And I think Microsoft has done a really good job of this. You know, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, has gone out on the record and said that the DoD will always have access to their best technology. They're always selling them this stuff, and they've been getting into the bespoke, uh, the the bespoke equipment game as well, like IVAS. Uh, you know, basically adapting Hololens to be an individual soldier augmentation system, where they're able to take data and put it directly into the field of view of the people who are on the front lines. That is the type of of attitude that I would much rather see from all of the big tech companies, where they're willing to go all in, they're willing to say why defense is important. And uh, you know, I'm, I know I'm rambling here, but I, I will I will note because it is very noteworthy. Uh, there's never been a situation like this in U.S. history. There's never ever in hundreds of years of history been a point where the most technologically advanced companies in the United States, with the best talent and the best intellectual property, largely majority refused to work with the Department of Defense. It's never happened. Can you imagine if in World War II, if you had had General Electric and Westinghouse and Boeing saying, boy, you know, we really would love to work with you guys, but I feel like this Imperial Japan thing, it's going to be a really big deal. I'm not sure we can afford to lock ourselves out of that very lucrative market. Uh, Can you imagine if they had said the same thing about Nazi Germany? Now, I'm not saying that necessarily the China of today is as bad as Nazi Germany or directly comparable. But I do think that the under the underlying uh, argument is, is the same. You have big tech companies refusing to work with DOD, and there's never been a time in history like it, even as the DOD has put more money in ever, than ever into the technology that a lot of these big tech companies are uh, mooching off of. Man, I don't know if I can follow up uh, Nazi Germany comparisons here, but I, I have an observation from my time in both leading a recruiting team and talking to a lot of candidates and doing all of that, I I think that these kinds of conversations get framed in this very hyperbolic, very confrontational kind of manner. 
And, and I, I don't think they have to be. I think that there's a large percentage of the population who doesn't want to work in defense. They don't want to work at this kind of company. Okay, that's fine. There's also a lot of a lot of people who don't want to go work at an ad tech company or at a social media company. I'm one of them. Okay, that's fine too. Like people can have the freedom to make the decisions on where they want to go work. And it just gets framed as this sort of like rams butting heads in some sort of confrontational battle. And it's like, if you don't want to work on these things, okay, then go somewhere else. Like we do great recruiting to Palmer's point. We have a lot of people who are excited about what we're working. A lot of people who want to work on these feel the kind of patriotic drive who don't get the kind of, you know, push from the, 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 the tech community, or they don't want to go work at the incumbents like Lockheed, like great. We're a great place for those. So I, just, I don't, I don't want to frame it in this sort of like us versus them sort of thing. And at, at its core, it's about like, do what makes you excited. Do it. What's fun for you. Do what's exciting for you. And uh, we found a home for a lot of those people. That's very true. And uh, and you know, I I think the you know Palmer brought up the ethics piece, and uh, two of my favorite people who study ethics are in this room right now, Trey and Antonio. And I know Antonio has a lot of questions on ethics and 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 defense. So I'd love to to let Antonio uh, ask ask some questions here. Well, sorry, I, I love that I'm being framed as an ethicist, but um, I have been thinking and writing about religion recently. And um, it's intriguing when you think about ethical war, because I think in, in the sort of liberal tradition as it currently exists, the notion of there being an ethical war is kind of anathema, to use a loose religious analogy. But it is the case that the Catholic Church, for example, does have a doctrine of just war that goes back as far as St. Augustine, in fact, and, and St. Thomas. Um, Judaism also has notions of just war. Um, and the, the principles of just war are around, um, uh, you know, the war having been called by a, a sovereign nation. It's a legitimate war. Um, also, not excessive cruelty being uh, used. And also that the fact that it can be won, right? The fact that it's a winnable war rather than a suicidal war. So anyhow, it, it's just interesting to, to sit there and reason about what, what do the ethics of war mean? And I imagine people in this room um, who, you know, actually work in this business. We no longer have a, a, have a department of defense, you know, a department of war, we have a department of defense, but I guess we call it defense now to be more polite. Um, but those who have thought about it probably have thoughts on, on the matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is definitely something we think about a lot, um, as a company and as individuals. Um, you know, I think the, the kind of free ride that people try to take in this space is they basically say like, I don't, I don't believe that, um, building weapons essentially is just or ethical. Um, but, and so they say like, I'm washing my hands of this decision and therefore I haven't made an ethical decision. But the reality is, is that choosing to not do this, uh, is, uh, could be a crime of, uh, of omission rather than a crime of commission. Like it, you are making an ethical decision when you decide to not contribute, um, because there's all sorts of ways that, you know, deterrence and, um, peacekeeping and all sorts of other things are, that are core to the, the use of the military in, in modern age. Uh, it protects people that need to be protected. And I think this is why, you know, you go back to the Augustinian kind of dialogue around just war theory, and you see like kind of rules that are laid out for how we're supposed to engage. And just war theory is really echoed in the United States doctrine for how we're supposed to engage in war. And of course, there will be mistakes. Of course, there's going to be things that go wrong. Of course, there will be individuals that do things that they shouldn't do. Um, but, you know, our belief is, and we can have a much longer discussion about this, depending on where, where you guys want the conversation to go. But, you know, we believe that uh, we want to support a military that is rooted around the ethical decisions that have been, you know, have foundations going back thousands of, of years behind deterrence, behind, you know, just cause, behind um, proportionality and discrimination, behind 
you know, all of these concepts that, that are kind of core to the just war doctrine. And, and I mean, you guys have thought a lot, too, about just this, you know, there's a broad conversation happening now about ethical AI, and particularly human in the loop technologies. And of course, it becomes even more important when we're talking about defense companies, and particularly hardware software companies. How do you all explain this? How do you, you know, you actually don't need to explain the customer, but often you need to explain to the public. How do you think about that? Well, I, I think kind of the, the um, first part to keep in mind is that the vast majority of what the U.S. is concerned with, the vast majority of what, you know, we kind of spend money on and, and try to develop is better ways to get more precise intelligence to understand exactly what's going on, to understand intent, to understand, you know, who who is doing what and why. Um, so, you know, I would say probably like, you know, 90 percent of the actual, you know, sort of on the ground effort really goes to kind of first and foremost this better intelligence aspect of, you know, how do we how do we make better informed decisions? Um, and, and so I think a key part of this as we think about it is, you know, where can we apply AI best? Uh, well, first and foremost, it's automating a lot of these mechanical aspects. It's how do I take huge amounts of sensor data? How do I take huge amounts of information that's being, uh, you know, available to more efficiently understand like, hey, where are, you know, kind of foreign military targets moving. You know, if Russia's moving into Crimea, I want to understand how, why, and where, and I want to understand it in advance, and I want to understand it very precisely and know what's going on. I don't want to be surprised by that type of information. And that There's really no boils There's no high down. ground in being surprised, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think the, um, you know, a lot of where we focus our energy is how do I take a lot of these more mechanical aspects where we're first and foremost limited by the manpower available just to understand what is going on and apply AI to those problems. I think that's something that we focused on. That's where sort of our bread and butter is. Uh, that's really what we what we do. You know, I think there's a lot of legitimate questions around. You know, how autonomous should these systems be? You know, if it's making, if there's, you know, kind of an AI making a life or death decision, you know, is that ethical? Should we do it? Our view, and this has been pretty straightforward. We don't want uh, AIs making life and death decisions, and nobody in DoD does either. Uh, that's not something that anyone's talking about. Uh, what they really want is the ability to kind of automate a lot of these more mechanical aspects of it. And there's been a lot of technologies where we just said, like, hey, this is just not something we think can be applied uh, in a way that can be handled responsibly, just given the state of technology. We stayed away from things with, um, you know, facial recognition, for example. We're like, I just don't think you can apply this responsibly where how the technology works today. It's just not really feasible. So we just stayed away from it. Um, so there's a number of areas like that where we kind of view how we build this technology, how it's employed, uh, where we have a lot of responsibility in thinking through, can this be employed in a responsible way? Um, and, and, you know, are we kind of building these technologies in a way that aids human understanding and really aids human agency and accountability over their decisions, not the other way around? So I, I have a, a follow-up there, question there, Brian. It's it a great segue to actually what I was thinking about, because you look at these drones, and again, I, you know, I'm I'm like a tourist viewing it from the outside, and you know, you guys understand this world way better. But from what I understand, right, there's a human in the loop, and typically the actual human decision maker is sitting in like an air-conditioned container outside of Las Vegas, somewhere in Vegas, right, literally on the other side of the world. And somehow it's interesting that we as humans think that, in some sense. Uh, it, it, it's twofold. One, a human has to take moral responsibility. I.e., there's a human with moral agency in the world. And then two, when it comes to things like citations and medals, right? There's this whole, as I understand it, open question in the armed services about whether drone pilots should actually get medals for valor. Like, did they really risk themselves? There's still this notion of heroism that, in some sense, fair sport means that you had to have risked your life for heroism. But there's that issue of it. And then there's even a more macro issue, which is like, what happens when war doesn't actually require human life? 
which translates into political will in the case of democracies, it just requires capital, right? You can just buy an army rather than, and there's no human soul involved, right? So I, I guess there's, it's a question that existing at two levels, like what happens when you, maybe you should remove the human from the loop. I mean, if we can see that humans can actually drive better, or sorry, that computers on average can actually drive better because humans are actually bad drivers, why, why wouldn't that also be true when it came to, I don't know, ground attack aircraft or something, right? And, and then separately from that, let's assume we make that jump and actually allow humans to get out of the loop. What does that mean for geopolitics in general? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of conversation about like this belief that the booms just get bigger and bigger. And I think until you know, World War, the end of World War II, that was probably true. You know, we went from like fighting with spears and bows and arrows and, you know, leveled up to, <laughs> you know, guns and bombs. And eventually, you know, we get to the atom bomb and we look around at each other as civilization and say, wow, this is a really bad idea. Um, it, something is, is horribly wrong here. Uh, and really, there, since then, there's been this kind of continuous movement towards technology uh, creating more ethical scenarios around conflict when it has had to happen. And so you get things like precision guided munitions, you get um, stealth aircraft, you get, um, you know, all of this like special forces activity rather than big like moving infantries and armor and tanks and things like that. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that this is kind of part of the concept of proportionality and discrimination that exists within just war theory, uh, to your point, Antonio, which is really like, man, if we can do if when we need to to do something, um, which, you know, we're always regretting doing, we don't want to take kinetic action against an adversary. But if we need to, how can we do that in a way that preserves life and protects life to the extent possible? And the answer to that in many cases is better technology. Um, And I think you know, we, there are certainly limits and questions and things like that you want to apply to that. But, but I think that is oftentimes missed is that we are, we have been moving kind of as, you know, this arc of justice that Martin Luther King talked about, like the arc of justice is bending towards doing a better job with this. And we can continue to bend in that direction. And that, you know, sometimes that will involve building tech that might initially be kind of scary. I think another piece that's worth noting is the move we've been seeing is, you know, decreasingly focused on kind of the kinetic aspects and increasingly focused on um, the aspects of like, how do I have better disruption of communications uh, and the ability to operate? So I, I think increasingly the goal is um, lower kind of, you know, lower damage, lower kinetic engagement, uh, ways to kind of accomplish the aims without having to resort to the sort of more violent kind of, you know, ends of this. I think increasing, you'll see this be much more about how do I prevent you from operating? You just know it won't work. So the real deterrence here is going to be, you could try, it won't work. Uh, and I think that's ultimately where the DOD wants to go uh, and an area where we're very excited to engage in. Yeah, I, I'd also like you know, d- directly addressing, you know, the hypothetical of like you know, the, these drone pilots and the concept of, you know, heroism in in fighting wars. I think that you know, I, I can I can kind of understand the argument when people make it, but at the same time, if I can have the choice between a life or death decision being made by a young man overseas who is tired, hungry, and has a gun pointed at his head, and he needs to make a call, you know, uh, that is going to be a life or death call, I'd rather have someone in an air-conditioned room making the choice, honestly, than somebody who is uh, who is themselves terrified out of out of their mind, and even if well disciplined, being influenced by the high risk that they are in. Uh, I I do think that the DoD is not going to get away 
from the idea of having a person in the loop making those life or death decisions probably within our lifetimes. I think it's too politically costly. I think that everything that I hear is that we want to maintain that moral high ground so that we can hold our adversaries to that same to that same line. Like the, the goal of keeping humans in the loop is not just, you know, this hypothetical ethical decision like if you're ethical you want to do it. Even the kind of very real politic people who don't care about human lives and you know like I think most politicians do care about human lives uh, to some degree, but I don't think I think there are some that don't really mind if uh, if if somebody goes over if somebody goes overseas and puts themselves at risk or not. And even those people would agree that it is not a good thing for Russia and China to exist in a world where the United States has ceded that as acceptable. Has ceded that you can have a machine making a life or death decision with no human intervention. It's just it's it's a world that nobody wants to go into. So going back to, to something Trey just said that I think is is pretty revolutionary that, that just doesn't get enough attention is this idea that the booms aren't getting bigger, uh, that throughout history, the booms got bigger. You know, like if you just look at the long arc of violence and, and warfare, the booms got bigger and then something switched after World War II and then it became much different. I, I mean, I'd be curious to hear thoughts there. It, it goes along with sort of the Stephen Pinker thesis, which is that we are becoming a less violent world. And in that case, it means that the future of defense looks very different. And it, it means that we're reducing civilian casualty, that we're, we're focused on preserving life in a way that, that say, throughout history, we, we really weren't. I'd be curious to hear how that informs a lot of your product decisions. Uh, you know, how, the, how warfare will look in 20 years is, is, is very different. I'd be curious to hear how that, that affects the company. Um, I, I think a lot of this, um, you know, kind of goes to this idea that, you know, the, 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 when you talk to the people and sort of command of these things, they, they want options, they want ways to not escalate a conflict. They want ways to um, kind of be very precise and measured and have kind of these alternative ways of, of, of sort of engaging. Um, and, and I think this is where you see a rise in sort of, you know, cyber capabilities, electronic attack capabilities, um, you know, kind of more surveillance being, being the thrust. And so from us, you know, on a product perspective, um, you know, what we've focused on is, you know, these areas that we think are going to be critical over the next several generations, right? So this is going to be, you know, autonomy applied to how do I better defend my, you know, kind of manned assets, my manned capabilities? Um, how do I give more, you know, kind of tactical soldiers on the ground, uh, which, you know, can't have the really exquisite high-end, um, you know, kind of very fancy aircraft to do all the sort of surveillance they would want? Um, how do you give them the same kind of level of intelligence ability to know what's happening around them, to know where the threats are, and be able to respond to those things very, very quickly? Um, you know, I think the other side of this is, you have a lot of the technologies that were principally the U.S. technology. So you think things like you know precision strike, UAVs, all of that is completely commoditized at this point. You look at the, the conflict that happened in Azerbaijan and Armenia, it was a very modern conflict, which was completely one-sided uh, with, you know, kind of um, one side having modern drone technology that they bought from Israel and Turkey. And the other side having kind of legacy Russian uh, kind of big systems, completely one-sided. It was the modern drone thing that completely um, turned the war in just a matter of like days, um, where you know they were even taking old uh, Russian A into um, you know kind of biplanes and using those to trigger the uh, surface-air missile systems from revealing themselves. It's very very wild. Um, and so, but you look at that from the flip side, and for the U.S., 
that puts a lot of risk there. Now, a lot of these technologies that the U.S. had as sort of unilaterally um, their own capability, we have to be much more on the defensive. We have to have much more capability around deterring these, making these attacks and these engagements just ineffective. Um, and so a lot of what we focused on is that defensive aspect as well, uh, where we can build out better defensive capabilities for the U.S., which has been sorely underinvested in because we haven't needed to. But that has really shifted. And I think there's a, a reckoning and a realization that the, the sort of advantage we had on the monopoly on these technologies is gone. Uh, a lot of people have these now, and we have to respond very differently with the technologies we're building, fielding, and getting out there. And, and I think it's an area where we've really shined, uh, where we have a lot of really compelling tech we've been working on and uh, deploying. Um, and it's a huge area for the U.S. in terms of risk and an ability to respond to these modern technologies. So, I mean, I think it's really interesting that, that you mentioned, you know, kind of like future or, or, or current sort of skirmishes and, 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 you know, wars not necessarily involving the U.S., but current skirmishes looking very different. Is there kind of a, a viewpoint of within the company or just that, that you all have of, of, you know, five, 10 years from now, how things are going to look? I mean, obviously, five years ago, if you were talking about Russia and China's adversaries, it, it wasn't top of mind for people. Maybe some people in DOD, that was something people were thinking about, but broadly, People weren't thinking about new types of warfare, even new types of adversaries. I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on kind of not only what, what warfare looks like, but also what the map looks like in, say, 10 years. Or, or to put right, it right. a little bit more. Go Palmer. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that there's two things in, that I would respond with. One is, is cynical Palmer. Cynical Palmer says five years from now, nothing is going to be different. It's mostly going to be the same. The DoD is a very slow moving organism, even when it works at its absolute best. And so barring some kind of major conflict breaking out in the next couple of years, I think that five years from now, most of DoD is going to look the same. You're going to have interesting elements of new technology that are just being deployed in kind of pilots and trials. Uh, you're going to have some stuff in special operations, but by and large, the machine is going to look about the same. 10 years out, I think things are going to actually start looking different. Uh, I think that by then, a lot of the things that the seeds that are being planted today will have grown into something real. I think that one of the really big changes 10 years from now is that very few military decisions will be made without enough information. Uh, we, we touched on this earlier, but right now, so many military decisions are made in a information vacuum. You don't really know what your enemy is doing. You don't really know what they're doing next. You don't know exactly what their capabilities are. Um, you know, there, there's a reason that the art of war touches on these exact issues, you know, going back thousands of years, because from then till now, that's always been a problem. I think that in 10 years, you can start to imagine a world where some conflicts, not all of them, but some conflicts, everyone on both sides is going to be making their decisions with full knowledge of exactly what their adversary is working with, what assets they've deployed, and what those assets are capable of. And I think that that's going to lead to a much more effective deterrent. Like Trey said earlier, the real goal here is to deter the conflict from even happening. Uh, you know, like Brian says, it's to make sure that they say, oh, it just won't work. It can't happen. And that can only happen, I think, after we have a few big examples of a conflict where both sides are playing a game where they understand exactly what's going on. Uh, you know, basically take, taking war for less, making it less of a stab in the dark and more you know, closer to chess, where each side fully understands what the other player is working with. Uh, I think that's going to be maybe the biggest shift in warfare over the next decade. I think you can take that pendulum a little bit farther, too, though. And instead of stabbing in the dark, you actually have too much information. And I think that's one of the things that we're starting to try to wrap our heads around from just a operational standpoint. How do we start building systems and thinking about problems where we actually 
have way too much information and can't even distill it down to actionable intelligence. So, yeah, the, the, the way we, we talk cut about that it, both ways. Yeah, well, like the way we talk about it in Android is usually we want to get the right information to the right people at the right time. More information is not in and of itself a good aim. You don't need to inform everybody of everything at all times. The human brain is not capable of it. People are terrible parallel computers. You can't put 100 people in a room and think 100 times faster than one person. Uh, but what you can do is take the most relevant information that you actually do care about uh, and get that to the right people at the right time. Like a really specific example is, you know, pe- people often say, oh, well, you know, your, your, uh, your towers, why, why do they ignore, let's say, animals? Why do they ignore, you know, certain things in certain, certain situations? And the reason that we do that is because animals are very rarely relevant to the situations these are going on. But if there was a reason they needed to track them, they could do it. Heck, if our customers wanted to know where every bush was at all times, we could make it do that too. But there's no tactical value and there's no ethical value. There's no strategic value in knowing where every bush is. Uh, so you, yeah, jo, jo, Joe's right. It's about making sure that people have the right information at the right time. So one thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on, and we've talked a, a lot about this as a group on the show, is just this change in public service that's happened over the last decades. And, and you know, when you look at kind of military and and particularly people who enlist, you know, it used to be that that every man, uh, you know, in World War II, in Korea, in Vietnam, uh, would have to go fight, would, would have to, you know, conscription was, was part of kind of the national identity. You know, it didn't matter what socioeconomic class you came from. It didn't matter where you went to school. It didn't matter what state you were from. Everyone was serving the same cause. And of course, you know, 1973, things changed. And I think it was, you know, Nixon was heralded for this change. And, and I think a lot of people would agree that conscription is, is probably, you know, not something that, that people are longing for. But at the same time, there was a kind of a shared identity around public service. And now you don't have that shared identity about, around public service. And particularly, you don't have it when it comes to working with government, working with military, uh, and it's very stratified. And so, you know, one of the things we've talked about is, is, is tech actually creating companies that allow for a new type of public service? And, you know, your, your company is very close to where, I mean, you, your government is your customer. I'd be curious to hear if you all think of it as a form of public service that you're, that you're working with the government. Uh, if that's something that, that, you know, the people who are coming to Andrew to work and applying, if that's something that they see as sort of a renewed call to public service that just looks different than, say, what our grandfathers were doing when they were, were signing up uh, you know, to, to, to be in the military. I'll jump in on this one. Um, I actually have gone through that enlistment process. I've gone through MEPS, did uh, basic infantry school, did all that good stuff. And uh, I was by no means any like super soldier or anything. I was just a basic grunt. But I think that the ability to contribute to something that I think is meaningful and continue to think is meaningful. The reason I joined, by the way, I joined very late in life after kind of seeing a bunch of consumption culture around me and just kind of wanting to do a little bit more. And I think that different people hit that phase at different points in their life. And so I joined the army. Um, the things that I'm, I've been able to do at Andrew and the things that I see the people around me at Andrew being able to contribute have like far surpassed my like minimal, like granted, I didn't do a whole lot in the army, but uh, I feel like the ability to contribute at Andrew has, it, it's, giving people that opportunity and incentivizing them to have a impact on public service, whether from the civilian or the like private sector, or without having to go through all of the pain of uh, basic infantry school. I think it's a great option, <laughs> personally. 
and, can and I, like I, Joe, we have a, oh, we have a lot sorry. of vets on our team. Like twenty percent of our company is vets. So you know, I don't I don't think we would stand by and like try to be mar- martyrs around like we're the same as a government employee. Like at the end of the day, no, no, we're not the same as a government employee. Like there is there are levels of service that are far beyond what we're doing. Um, but that is worth mentioning. And then the other thing that I would say is like, can you imagine if the United States had like some sort of mandatory public service? Like if if Israel is any even remote analogy, like how many cybersecurity companies could we have? Like there would be a trillion cybersecurity companies if we we had the same dynamic as Israel. And don't get me wrong. I love the infantry. I want everybody to go to infantry school and learn how to code and we can do cyber infantry corps. But I think that having that option and and giving the ability to people that are that, that want to contribute, I think that it it just it's it it feels it feels good to be able to do something now that I couldn't do back then. It's it's funny uh, for reasons I won't get into. I was on the Andrew Careers page recently, and I noticed you have this enormous American flag in what seems to be your common space. I mean, it's kind of like that scene in Patton with George C. Scott when he comes out and like gives a lecture. It's that size of flag on the careers page, and so I I have to imagine that that sort of association between the flag and public service and your careers page was not accidental. No, I. I, I and Tony, you could have just emailed us your resume. You didn't have to. You didn't have to go on the web page for it. I was going to ask Catherine for the intro. You know, I didn't want to be obnoxious about it. We'll do it. We'll do it after the show. Okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs> I, I think the important thing there is we want to show that we are very much an American company. That we are aligned with American interests, and that is not something that all tech companies are willing to say. That there's been this growing idea that even if you're based in America and even if you take advantage of everything that America has to offer, that these big tech companies are kind of these transnational organizations, this this you know, this thing that, that transcends the idea of countries. And then that usually often goes along with I think, the moral equivalence between nations where uh, you know, the official word of the company is all, com- all countries are different, but you know, we're all, we're, nobody's better. They're all just different. And I think that most reasonable people can agree that there are countries that are better than other countries when it comes to the way that they interact with the rest of the world, when it comes to the way that they treat their own citizens. Um, And I think the United States and our allies are something we should be proud of. And we should say, hey, we are an American company. We are for American values. And uh, I I think having having a big flag there, maybe it's it's hard to read all of that in just, just walking in and seeing it. But I do think that it's not for people like you necessarily to look at and you know, not not to please 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 how people respond to the flag. But you know, when when investors walk in, they're like, "Oh, I love the flag, go America." But when veterans walk in, when customers who work at the DoD walk in, they get a different message, and it's one they don't get when they visit the campuses of a lot of these tech companies. And it's one that says, "We're there for you. We're not going to leave you in the dust, and we're not going to walk away." when you need us because we are behind you. And I, I, we get a lot of comments to that in effect. And I'm glad about that because that, that's exactly why we did it. I, I very much want to comment on this because on one of the shows last week, we, we asked one of the guests about seriousness and how America has a problem taking itself seriously in many regards, you know, like the, the culture of irony that exists on the internet. Um, you know, like, like there, there's sort of this, oh, well, if you take yourself too seriously, that's a problem. And to your point, like when vets come in and see the flag, there's a seriousness about that. And there's a seriousness, even though you guys have a ton of fun, there's a seriousness about the mission of this company that is different than, say, you know, just kind of normal Internet culture. And so, I mean, I, it, it, yeah, sa- I mean, it, 
like what, what you're saying is that, you know, you take yourself seriously and that there's a seriousness about kind of reverence of the flag. And it, it's interesting to me that that used to exist across all of America. Like everyone used to, to, to feel that way when they would see a massive flag and that doesn't exist anymore. But it's, it, it's, you know, it's no surprise to me that you guys have been the company that you are and that you also have a massive American flag with that kind of reverence for it. Can um, I ask one? Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I, so one question, one concern I have, again, as a tourist kind of looking at the geopolitical landscape, right, is that we've been living in this sort of Pax Americana for a long time, right? And, you know, it's unfashionable to say, but peace is the result of war, in fact. And if, in fact, none of us can seriously fear a civil war in the United States, it's because Sherman marched to the sea and burned Atlanta with it. If we can't really ponder a war in Europe, it's because uh, we bombed Germany into rubble. Um, you know, that's the reality of it, right? And so I, I just wonder, is that does that depend on the U.S. maintaining its technological edge such that effectively nobody would ever win against the United States in a conventional war, right? And, and that's, in some sense, what, what actually keeps it tamped down. So I, I just wonder if, if that's true, A, and if it is, will that edge be maintained, say, through the life of my children, for example? Our next war probably isn't going to be a conventional war. I mean, that, 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 that's really what it comes down to. Like, people have this idea that we're not, gonna, that we're not going to lose a conventional war. And I agree, like if it came down to what people think of a conventional war as today, like the big navies, they go out and they slug at each other back and forth, back and forth until everything is sunk. Uh, you know, we, we might actually do, we might actually do pretty well right now today. I, I think that's not a given 10 years from now, but the future of warfare likely isn't that it's urban, it's proxy wars. It is uh, cyber warfare. It is going in and being somewhat deniable in how you do things. And that is an area where we absolutely do not have the ability to win all or maybe even most conflicts. Our adversaries have done a very good job of taking the technology that they've developed to control their civilian population, notably China, and weaponizing that in a very, very powerful way. So you know, I, I, I think conventional war would actually be probably the best case outcome for the United States. Like right now, we are most prepared to fight the same wars that we already fought again. So I want to be mindful of time. Uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that some of us are, happen to be in sunny South Florida. Others of us are in Orange County. And of course, you guys are based in Orange County. Uh, I feel like you guys are ahead of the curve because uh, the anti-San Francisco vibe of the last six months, uh, you know, you guys, you guys decided to leave San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley and build in Orange County in 2017. I, I, you know, I want to hear what's so great about SoCal and, and why people should move to Orange County. Well, I'll say before we get into all of that, I mean, you know, getting out of the Bay Area was just part of a long process for me. I actually got kicked out of Atherton first. Me and my friends who we were all living, we were living in the same house at the time while I was at Oculus. And uh, we took up the hobby of building jet engines. And we were building some very, very interesting kind of combined turbo ramjet systems that we were going to use to build a supersonic quadcopter. And the only thing more on annoying, in my estimation, than a neighbor who violates noise ordinances is one that knows how to get exactly up to the line just below it and then maintain that all weekend doing engine tests. So I, I kind of see how that happened. Uh, after the police got called on us enough, we kind of moved out. Um, but, you know, but then even going on from there, like moving back down to Orange County, it's a really good place to convince people from around the United States to move to. Like the Bay Area has this interesting dynamic where, yes, there's a lot of great people there. There's a lot of great talent there. But if people aren't already in the Bay Area, it's probably for a reason. Maybe they don't like the cost of living. Maybe they don't like the culture. Uh, you know, maybe they don't want to work at those the types of companies that are in the Valley. And so it, if you're in the Valley, and this is something we struggled with at Oculus, 
getting people to move there from the rest of the country, especially middle America, was next to impossible. And you can forget getting most U.S. service veterans to want to move to San Francisco. just isn't going to happen. And so Orange County, you know, I, I knew also from the early days of Oculus, it's a great place to get people to move. It's got pretty good cost of living, good infrastructure, good schools. You're you know, right next to the beach, very short drive from from pretty good skiing. We've got a really good food scene. And it, you know, it's close to Los Angeles too. So you get all of the, all, all the niceties of Los Angeles with a pretty short drive. Um, I, I love Orange County. I grew up in Long Beach. Uh, so I guess that's LA County, but the very South edge of, of LA County. And, uh, I, I, I was, I was really happy to come back here. And I think a bunch of other, a bunch of other people have been happy, happy to make the same move. Curious what, you, what the rest of you guys think. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, a few a few things like yeah, we were ahead of the uh, move out of the Bay Area curve for sure, um, driven largely by cost of living. As Palmer mentioned, there's a great uh, great schools, great towns, great uh, amenities down here. I also think just given the nature of the company that we're building, it's very hard to find the kind of uh, the kind of talent base and the kind of space that we need to operate this company. Like we need to be out in the desert flying drones every day. We need to be building large facilities where we're prototyping and you know building machine shops and that sort of thing just hard to find that 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 kind of space for the growth that we were planning um in the bay and along those lines is like we've hired uh we're about 400 and some odd people now plans to be 700 by the end of the year plans for a couple thousand in the next few years like finding a place where we could have that kind of growth with the amenities and the facilities and the testing and all of that industrial base that we needed to grow the company was just going to be uh, very hard, bordering on impossible up in the Bay. So really is a good fit for us down here. So before we head out, I, I want to hear from each of you, what's been like your proudest moment building this company? If you can share any personal stories. Shoot, this is really tough uh, for, for, for me. It is, the problem is this sounds so cliche, but it really is the feedback that we get from customers. There's been probably no less than half a dozen times where a customer has given us feedback on exactly what our systems help them do, the problems that we help them solve. And it, it can be a little emotional for me because I got into this space because I felt that these people were not being served well. And a lot of these guys, they feel that. They feel like they're treated like dirt. They feel like the people who make technology for them are just trying to extract money from taxpayers rather than actually fixing their problems. And as I have people say, hey, you, I can tell you care thank you guys for not being a piece of shit. And you know, that, that to me has always been probably more powerful than most of the easy things. It'd be like, Oh, you know, I love when we tested this system. I loved when we had this big product breakthrough. It's way more gratifying to hear about how the system got used than it is to you know, get, get stuff done in the workspace. At least that, that's how it is for me. I think for me, I would I would totally agree. I think there's a lot on you know when we hear about you know how our technology was deployed and some kind of mission win they had. That's absolutely huge. I think for me, I um, you know probably one of the the things I've enjoyed the most was I think the first like three or four months I basically spent living out of a trailer in the desert, getting the tech to work, uh, and to see it go from that to you know something that's actually like deployed, working at scale. Um, that's pretty exciting. I, I really, you know, kind of that sort of, you know, ability to take these things from kind of concept to like actually working really fast has been pretty wild how fast we've been able to get it to go. Yeah. Speaking of deployments, um, again, army story time. Uh, there's a phrase for someone who's never deployed because they don't have the deployment patch. It's called the slick sleeve. I was unfortunately a slick sleeve during my time in the army and the ability to go and deploy 
and support U.S. forces in a capacity that was like actually impactful in an area that I was kind of, I won't say uniquely suited, but was able to contribute to um, in a combat validation is like definitely my proudest moment. I got to kind of check that off my bucket list. I would actually go in kind of the recruiting direction. Um, you know, when we first started the company, the idea, a big part of the idea, as we said, was about creating a place where the most aspirational talent could go to work on, uh, you know, projects of national significance. And, um, you know, it's been really inspiring to see all of the inbound that we get from people that, you know, basically affirm that and say, we really wanted to work on this problem, but, you know, I've been at Facebook for the last six years or, you know, I really wanted to work on this problem, but I'm stuck in the basement at Lockheed Martin. And, uh, and that's been really inspiring just to see that like the vision for creating a place where these misfit toys can go to contribute has been super cool. Man, you guys took all the, all the highbrow lofty ones. Uh, I'll, I'll go, I'll go with something a little bit more, uh, tactical and straightforward of the products, the products work. They get better every day. They get better every week. And seeing our counter drone system go out and smash enemy enemy quote unquote drones coming out a at a base, or seeing our products work and 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 fly with incredible uh, agility or long flight times or any of that, just seeing it go from like literally a whiteboard with five of us around four years ago to having this broad suite of things has, has been an incredible journey. And very proud of. Uh, the products and, and the work that they're doing out in the field. Maybe we can end it there. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you, Catherine. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everybody. This has been so fun.